Imagine a world where men stepped up and answered God's call to reach their full potential. Imagine a world where men put their faith and trust in God unwaveringly and without qualification. Imagine a world where men lived out God's purpose for them in everything they do. It's Not My Credit to Take explores the awe and wonder of how God shows up in the lives of strong, principled Christian men from all walks of life. Get ready to laugh, to cry, and to be transformed. I'm your host, Dr. Ed Slover, faithful husband, loving father, loyal friend, and unapologetically Christian. Welcome to the It's Not My Credit to Take podcast. Jerry Dugan, how are you, sir? I am doing great, Ed. Thank you. So happy to have you here. My guest today is Jerry Dugan. I first met Jerry through an online platform for podcasters called Podmatch. And he was a guest on my other podcast, the Quest for Life podcast. And he was gracious enough to have me as a guest on his show you know, entitled Beyond the Rut. Jerry's a combat veteran in Operation Iraqi Freedom, a leadership development consultant, a husband, father of two, and the host of the aforementioned Beyond the Rut podcast. And he once survived a Deadpool. Through his personal story of building resilience, he helps people redefine success and live, live their best lives in the areas of faith, family, fitness, finances, and future possibility. He's also recently published his first book called Beyond the Rut, Create a Life Worth Living in Your Faith, Family, and Career, which is available now on Amazon. Jerry's been married to his wife, Olivia, for 21 years, and they have two children, Jacob and Emma. Jerry, welcome to the It's Not My Credit to Take podcast. Awesome. And thanks for keeping the legend of that Deadpool going. I keep forgetting about it until you bring it up. Like, yeah, that's right. People literally bet against me dying or actually for me to die. And I'm like, oh, wow. <laughs> Such a great well, life. Yeah, well, not not for nothing. That's actually where we're going to start because I, I found the oh, wow. story you told on uh, my my podcast, my other podcast, really interesting. So I figured I'd, I'd open it up and have you share it here. So for those of you who don't know what a Deadpool is, Jerry's going to describe this and also describe how he survived it. So Jerry, the floor is yours. Awesome. Yeah, I actually didn't know it was called a Deadpool until I saw the movie Deadpool and they were betting on that main character and how they were going to die and they had a whole board. Well, it turns out when I went to basic training in 1999, I was, you know, five foot four. I think I weighed about 185, 190 pounds. Uh, and on day one, or actually what we call day zero, our drill sergeants are making us do push ups, flutter kicks, run in place, uh, something we called front back go, which I don't need to get into. Uh, but it involves a lot of moving. And uh, and our drill sergeant was telling us of how rough it was going to be for the next nine weeks in basic training, that not only is it rough and we're going to be broken down and rebuilt, but Fort Sill, Oklahoma has one person at least die every year from a heat stroke. And it, it, he let us know from there that it's already June and no one has died yet. And as he said that, he's walking past me and... I look out the corner of my eye and I noticed everybody's heads had turned and started looking at me. And I thought maybe they're just looking at the drill sergeant, but the drill sergeant was gone and they were still looking at me. And I realized, oh boy, these guys think I'm going to be the one who dies. Uh, maybe not. Well, I forgot about that. We go through nine weeks of basic training. Um, you know, it, it was kind of, it was as expected. It was rough. There was a lot of working out. There were people who were mad at me at times. I was mad at other people at times. Uh, and then over time, people started to kind of cheer me on. And I just thought it was cool. It's uplifting. They're, they're kind of amping me up here. I love this. 
But then on the final week of basic training, it's kind of like things are winding down. You're cleaning everything back, uh, you know, cleaning things up to turn it back in. Uh, and I'm in the barracks uh, on a cleaning detail with a, a guy named Bohannon, uh, Private Bohannon. And I remember it's just the two of us, like, almost like that scene from Forrest Gump where uh, Forrest and Bubba were in the barracks cleaning floors with Popcorn, the toothbrushes. Butter, yeah <laughs> all the ways that you can have shrimp and so it was like that where i mean we weren't that close to each other because we didn't have to be in a camera shot but we were within a few feet of each other uh cleaning like windowsills and dusting everything off and bohannon says hey jerry i just wanted you to know i, I really respect you and i was like okay cool thanks man i i really respect you and uh he goes no i, I really admire you and it's just he's saying it in like a soft uh, almost intimate way. So then I'm starting to feel uncomfortable. I'm looking around the room, like, why is he saying this? And uh, this is where I got to tell him I'm straight, you know, all those things. Uh, but <laughs> right. He isn't going in that direction to my relief. He wasn't trying to hit on me. Uh, what he proceeds to do instead is confess to me that he had bet money against me uh, during basic training. And I thought, people are betting against each other, like with actual money. And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, well, what was the bet? And he said, we were taking bets to see when you were going to die of heat stroke. You know, remember, and he was like, remember when drill sergeant said that somebody dies every year from heat stroke and no one had died yet. And we all looked at you and I was like, yeah. And that's when it started. We all took money bets on when during the nine weeks you were going to die and then we started to liven it up some people thought you were going to die on the grenade range some people thought you were going to die on the shooting range uh somebody thought you were going to fall off an obstacle and break your neck and i'm like wait you guys bet on me to die and he said <laughs> yeah obviously none of us won the money because you're about to graduate and we're not doing anything dangerous for the next few days uh, so i just want to let you know that despite all that like you like really stood out and just did your thing and took care of yourself. You took care of us. You, you took a lot of heat for the things that we would do. Um, that was stupid. And, and I just really admire you for all that. And I thought, wow, people bet on me to die. And then the next thought I had was who was running this betting pool? Like, do I get any of that money? <laughs> uh, he never told me who ran the betting pool, but, uh, somebody made out like a bandit that, that, quarter um so nine weeks and somebody made some money and uh and that's why some of those guys were mad at you right because you didn't die it was just like random things like we get finished with like an obstacle course and somebody'd like shoulder bump me and say f and dugan and uh or like we'd go to the shooting range and you know people would try to pick fights with me and i'm like the drill sergeants you know when you're on a shooting range on a grenade range like the safety level goes up like tenfold if not a hundredfold so any any sign of aggression like drill sergeants would just kind of swoop in and break it up uh but yeah people are just getting mad at me shoulder bumping me challenging me to fights and uh and i started to connect the dots that these were probably moments where these guys were losing their bet and uh and they were frustrated not trying to make the bet happen but you know, just mad because they lost 20 bucks, a hundred bucks, whatever it was, they bet they, they definitely lost out on some money there. And, uh, and I, I find myself getting motivated by that because even when I was growing up, you know, my own extended family would bet against each other. And I remember setting goals for myself that I don't care what they think about my life. I care what I think about my life and I'm going to, I'm going to go live it to my fullest. And, uh, you know, that that Deadpool is just another reminder that you know people might be out there betting against you, uh, but you know there's a God out there who's betting for you, and you know even 
sacrificed his own son for you. So, uh, you know, having that on top of all this, uh, it's just a, a good motivator for me. No doubt. So tell tell us about your background, aside from your military background, tell us about your background and how you ended up where you are in your life and how you came to know Jesus. Oh, man. Uh, so my parents, uh, they met back in 1972. <laughs> when a man and a woman love each other. No, uh, that's too far. Uh, but they did meet in 72. My dad was stationed in Thailand during the Vietnam War. Uh, his platoon sergeant, his boss, had a uh, wife who is very meddling. Uh, noticed that a guy named Bruce Dugan was single and needed to meet a woman and uh, who would take care of him. So she introduced my dad to the lady who had become my mom. And they got married uh, in 1974, I think. So, wait, I, I got, anyway, 74 is when they got married. Two years later, I come along. And two years after that, my little brother comes along. Um, and, you know, typical tiger mom, very strict. You know, you got to perform for her affection kind of thing in terms of like good grades, be the best in your class, that kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, fast forward to when I'm 11 and my parents divorce and it, it just, tears my dad's world apart because he thought he was doing everything right he was a loving father he was a, a loving husband uh he 100 cared for everybody in his family he put his family first above all things and here he is being accused of cheating on my mom which really was my mom justifying her cheating on my dad um and so my brother and i are living with my dad we're in germany and my dad's just falling apart um he gets uh, not just ideations of suicide. He starts attempting suicide in front of my brother and I, uh, my brother's nine, I'm 11 at the time. And we're learning the hard way. How do you prevent somebody from pulling off suicide? And at the same time, keep it a secret because the alternative is my dad has to go live in a hospital. And then we go, have, we have to go live with my mom who clearly has abandoned the family uh, for somebody else. And that guy clearly does not care about our family because he tore it up. Um, so, things worked out, you know, uh, God had a hand in that, uh, before I was even a Christian, um, my dad wound up getting the help that he needed. And, uh, we wound up, my brother and I wound up in a foster home for about a month or two. And it was a glimpse into a world where family dynamics were healthy. You know, the, the kids were about our age. Uh, they were very mature for their age. The family would talk out their problems, the disagreements, that kind of thing. Very rational, which was the opposite of my brother and I, my brother and I would like start pushing each other, shoving each other, choking each other out, punching each other in the head, screaming obscenities at each other when we disagreed. Um, and they just calmly said, that's not how we do things in this home. Um, Jerry, we need you in that room until you calm down. Jimmy, we need you in that room until you calm down. And both of us are just screaming. We want to go home. We want to get out of here. This place sucks. And, but looking back and even then we knew deep down, this place does not suck. Uh, if, if anything, we hate it because it's better than where we were. And, mm -hmm. uh, we don't want to betray our father that way. We don't want to betray our family that way. And, um, they helped us get past that, you know, just the short time we were with them, like realizing it's okay, you know? you can be loved on and not betray your family at the same time. Um, in fact, you're going to be reunited with your father. You know, he's, he's doing well and so on. And so we do get reunited with my dad. Uh, we move back to California, go through middle school, go through high school. Um, but that window from 11 years old to 14, you know, you think we just got out of hell, you know, like my dad did not kill himself. That's great. It was a horrible three to four months that we were enduring that. Um, and you think it'd be done there, but it turns out, 
my extended family was also going through a lot of heartache and divorces and, you know, hurt people, hurt people. So I find myself being bullied by cousins, by an uncle, uh, kind of getting picked on. I try to defend myself. I was like the little guy in the group. Um, and so, yeah, from 11 to 14, it's just tough. Like, I, it was like, why did we survive that thing in Germany just to come into this? This is our own family. What is wrong with everybody here? And it just hit me at like 14 years old. There's got to be a better way to life. You know, everybody I'm looking at is looking forward to living on welfare. They're accepting that poverty is their fate. They're accepting that it, there's no point in learning in school because these degrees aren't going to equate to income or success. There is no success to be had. And I just thought, this is so sad. This can't be what we have to look forward to. What's the point? Suicide's not an option for me. So what is the point of life And if this is what we have to look forward to? And it was just like, I remember the O'Neill family, the, the foster family we were with in Germany. And then I started to realize, wait, I've got friends at school and they love their families. You know, they, they go on family vacations together willingly. Like I never wanted to go to my grandparents' house because I was going to be bullied. I was going to be made fun of. I was going to have to sleep on a dirty floor. Um, you know, it just, it, it wasn't fun, <laughs> but I had to be there because my dad was going. Um, but my friends were like, oh yeah, we get to go on a vacation. Where are you going? Oh, we're going to our grandparents' house. I'm like, isn't that going to suck? No, we love it there. We get to play. They got a big ranch. Uh, it's going to be like this. It's going to be like that. And and they just have a great time. And when we all come back together at school, they all have these great stories they're talking about and, and the fun they had with their families. And that started to sink in. Like my friends, their parents are still together. Their family dynamic is healthier. They have a future they're looking forward to. Why can't I? And, and so having friends like that and having that O'Neill family, uh, really helped me see if there is another way. And I remember at 14, um, I was, I was earning like $20 a month watering somebody's yard for him, uh, while they went on vacation. And so I took that money, I bought a, bought a bunch of Christmas cards and a bunch of gifts from the dollar store. And I wrote on every card to my family, um, my vision for my future, very like Joseph esque type of thing. If, if you're familiar with the story of Joseph in the Bible guys, yeah. uh, where he tells all his brothers, what a great life he's going to have. And they're all going to bow down to him. Um, <laughs> uh, it was very much like that. And I wasn't a Christian yet. It took so a little while, right. but it, it but yeah, it happened. It did. <laughs> and so I shared with my family, I'm going to be the first to go to college. I'm going to be the f- person that helps inspire everybody else to see that, We can walk into a store and not have security follow us around. Uh, We can have a reputation that precedes us. That's a positive one. Like people hear the last name and think, oh, hey, the Dugans are coming over. Hey, that's Dugan. Um, And not a, oh, here come the Dugans. Um, All right, call security. You know, like that there was a better way in life. And I wanted people to see that. And I wanted to be that example for people to follow. Um, And it got received in one of two ways, either A, People saw it as like, hey, that's cute. Go for it. I support you. Um, and later on, they would tell me that that inspired them to go back to school. Um, or the other half, which is who do you think you are to pursue success and to think that you're better than us? And then they would try to bring me down. Uh, and then that led my dad to realize, oh, my son is not having a good time here. And he, he was able to come in and say, all right, you never have to visit them again. You know, as far as I'm concerned, you don't have them as family if you don't want them as a family and uh, you don't have to go. I have to go still. Cause I owe my grandpa, you know, I owe grandpa money and I got to work it off. I'm like, okay. Um, 
so yeah, high school goes by. I go to college. I graduate. I'm the first to graduate from college. Um, but as a pre-med student with a 2.1 GPA, not going to med school. <laughs> no, that, the, yeah, that. Yeah. yeah I, I, I don't have any additional commentary for that one, Jerry. The 2.1 2. GPA. I mean, 2. you almost 1. have to work hard for that. Yeah. Uh, and, and my faculty <laughs> advisor, he, he knew, like, he even advised me my junior year to consider switching over to education uh, as my degree plan uh, because yeah. he, saw, he saw my grades and he would sign off on other people's degree plans and ask them, hey, I saw that you were getting a C in this class or a D, but now you're getting a B or an A. Uh, what changed? Oh, yeah. Jerry has been helping me with these courses in my labs and this and that. And, uh, and then I get tutored by this person. And he's like, wait, 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 Jerry. Yeah. Jerry Dugan. Yeah. Jerry Dugan, Jerry and Dugan together. That same name, Jerry Dugan, that guy. Yeah. He helped me pass this course. And he's looking at the Jeep, like the grade. And he's like, Jerry's failing this class. Like, <laughs> How did he help me <laughs> pass the class? But he's failing it himself. And, and so he recognized in my junior year, like this guy is clearly self-sabotaging. I don't think he wants to be a doctor. Uh, and so he's trying to advise me towards something I, I clearly had a passion for because I was tutoring my classmates to pass the same classes I was failing. And, and it's because I wasn't doing the homework. I wasn't preparing for the exams. Like I would learn the material, but after the exam, just out of spite, like, well, why did I get that wrong? I should have gotten it right. I'm like, oh yeah, no, that was wrong. Uh, oh, that, yeah, I forgot to include this equation into the, the chemical formula and and so I'd learn the stuff, but after the fact, and we'd have lab and I was always prepared, but I was also tired and just didn't want to be there. So I'd kind of make a mistake or I'd be lazy on the write up afterwards. And I mean, it was just clear. I did not want to be a doctor and uh, I didn't admit that. So I joined the army to be a medic, get the experience to offset the GPA and then maybe go back to school, beef the GPA up, prepare for the MCAT, go be a doctor. Um, but yeah, that didn't happen. <laughs> God had different plans for you. hundred percent. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It turns out he had his plan the whole time. Um, so yeah, I serve in the army four years. Um, I get that six month extension to go to war. Uh, still not a Christian at this point, but, uh, the, the Eve before actually the night we're rolling in. So it's, uh, the air force and the Navy have already started their aerial bombardment of Baghdad. Uh, I, if it, from our perspective, the Marines already jumped the gun and went into Basra with the British, uh, from the Marines perspective, third infantry division, the unit I was in, we jumped the gun and we crossed the border too soon. So, uh, it seems like we're in this perpetual who went first kind of thing, but I think the reality is we all went at the same time. So <laughs> that was, uh, that was the unprecedented thing in, in military history for the U S but anyway, uh, before we rolled in, I remember looking around, seeing the people who were scared, you know, people are you know, writing their letters home, they're, they're getting their uniform, their chemical suits on. And I remember writing a letter home to my wife because I'm thinking, all right, I'm a medic. Um, the medics have the most posthumously awarded medals of any other job in the army. Okay. I'm in that category. On top of that, when you watch any war movie, you know, the guy who gets killed is the short timer. And I was like, officially, this was like March. I was supposed to be out that June, but I got extended for the war. So like I'm the short timer, I'm dead. I'm in the category of the most posthumously awarded medals and I'm a short timer. You put the two together. I'm not coming home from this thing. There's no way I'm coming home from this. So I wrote my, my last letter to my wife or what I thought would be my last letter. And, um, 
And it wasn't like anything that would scare her because I was, I was cognizant of that. Like I didn't want her to read this letter, freak out. And if I died, she'd really freak out, but I wanted her to know. And I wanted like, it was like a letter to her, but also I included my son and a note to my daughter just to share with them how much I love them. And there was nothing of me really saying goodbye. I wanted that letter to be with them for the rest of their lives. Uh, and so again, nothing in there to say farewell in, in terms of like, they would understand and see it and recognize it, but yeah, folded it up. And instead of handing that to a buddy in case I died, I just dropped it in the mail. I wrote free mail on the envelope, sent it home. And that was my last letter. We still have a couple more hours before the war kicks off. And I think I saw somebody praying. I'm not sure, but I just remember like feeling it on my heart to say something to God. Like, and again, this is Mr. I, I claim to be agnostic or atheist, uh, but it's like, why not? Let's cover all the bases. And I remember saying, God, if you're real, you're going to replace me with somebody who is going to love my wife better than I did and is going to raise my children as if they were his own. And that's all I got for you. I, I didn't say amen or anything. I was like, that's all I got for you. So if you're real, this is what you're going to do. This is why you're going to do it. Done. Um, and then. Yeah, the war kicks off. We go through a minefield. Um, we have our first actual enemy encounter within 24 hours in Nazaria. Uh, so an artillery shootout. Uh, so we're shooting artillery at them because they were shooting artillery at us. Uh, they missed wide. We didn't miss at all. And then we push on into Baghdad within 21 days. And uh, then we just hunker down and wait for the orders to go back to Kuwait. And, uh, you know, time goes by. You know, we're starting to have people try to break into our compound to, to steal these aluminum rods that were in the compound. And it was just two of us pulling security, myself and a friend named Gary, Sergeant Parks. And I remember we would just like chase them down, take the clothes off the men, set the clothes on fire. If they had cash on them, we'd set that on fire. We were just like trying to scare people into not coming back. And one day this guy named Taylor comes up and he's from another platoon. And he just says, Hey, Sergeant Dugan, what's, what's up with their clothes? And, uh, it kind of threw me for a loop because nobody had ever questioned what we were doing. They just saw like, well, they're, these two guys are doing enough security that really 15 guys should be doing, but we're so spread thin. Uh, we're grateful that they're keeping people out of our compound as best they can. But here comes this guy questioning our methods. And he's a young guy. He's like a private, uh, like an E2. So he's just got one Chevron on his uniform and he's just asking what's up with their clothes. You know, why are you doing this to them? And, I remember being annoyed uh, because when I looked at him, he was out of uniform in the sense that he had a gold chain hanging out of his, his uh, body armor. You're not supposed to have jewelry showing. And um, so I remember the gold chain. I remember getting mad about the gold chain, like inside I was mad just to see the gold chain sticking out. Um, and so I'm already annoyed. He's questioning me. He's out of uniform. You know, you need to put this guy in line. He's, he's questioning you. Uh, and the, the chain, by the way, that's hanging out is a cross. He's got a, a Christian cross hanging outside his uniform. And I remember saying to the guy, Hey, look, private, you can either help me pull security on these guys who broke into our compound, or you can join them. What do you want to do? And yeah, this, this was like an example of somebody who was reporting to a higher power than me. Uh, he introduced a third option I didn't even think about. And I'm like, wow, that kid is slick because I, I didn't give him a third option. Uh, but the third option he gave was uh, he snapped a parade rest and he said, Sergeant, I'm going to go back to my place. And and the look on his face was resignation. And and he you know turned around. He didn't about face like he went all drill and ceremony on me in the combat mm -hmm. zone. I'm like, 
what a jerk, you know, like that was all short of like saluting me out there for a sniper check. Um, and he walked away and so I was mad until he was a good 10, 15 feet away from me. And I turned around and looked back at this, this family that I, you know, had at gunpoint and, and I just like all that anger and rage and uh, aggression was gone. And that question in my head was still there. What are you doing? And, and then at the same time, I realized this is the day my daughter's being born. And in fact, she's already a baby now. Um, what am I doing? You know, if I'm not coming back, I can't have my daughter find out that her husband, that her dad was a, a monster. And so I released that family. I sent them on their way. And, um, you know, Gary recruited some other guys to patrol the compound. I went back to my hooch, my, my little room that I had in the compound. And I, I just remember crying my eyes out. Like, who am I? What have I become? And I, I'm like saying out loud, I'm not, I didn't think I was praying, but you know, I'm saying over and over to nobody in the room, please don't let me be a monster when I die. Yeah. I, I cannot be a monster. And, uh, my daughter, my daughter deserves a father who is willing to do everything in the world to make her safe. Um, and that was like the last, and we were still in that country for a few more weeks, but that was the last day I was aggressive towards any of the looters and still intimidating, but, you know, never stripped them down anymore. Didn't set any of their stuff on fire. Uh, we, we got some, uh, translators to create some cards in Arabic for us that let them know we do have the authority to shoot you. We'd rather not please go through the front gate and ask for our boss and talk to him <laughs> if you want access to what's inside the compound. Um, so things changed all because this one guy with his gold chain with the cross sticking out came up and asked me, what are you doing? What's up with their clothes? And you know, when I gave him his options, he respectfully resigned and went back to where he was before he came over to me. Um, and yeah, it was another two years though, when I, when I accepted Jesus, but before that, you know, we eventually got back to Georgia, uh, got reunited with my family. And the cool thing was like, well, there's a bunch of cool things in this, but we're driving back to the house. Um, my mom, my stepdad, my brother who came out from California, my mom and stepdad came from North Carolina. Um, they're driving in their car and Olivia and I are in our car with Emma. Uh, my son, Jacob is in the other car with them. So we're driving back to the house and Olivia says to me, Hey, I got to share something with you. Please don't be mad about this. And, um, and I'm thinking in my head, the briefing that our chaplain, our, our chaplain was hilarious. He was like, uh, he called himself the people's chaplain. The way he would encourage people to come to Sunday mass with him was he would advertise in Kuwait that he was the only chaplain in the U S army who used real wine for communion. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> that guy had, I, yeah, he, he knew the national That's stock awesome. for wine. And when you're in a deployment like that, you can have pretty much anything you want. If you know the national stock number. And he did his homework. He tracked down uh, Cabernet Sauvignon uh, and what would the army be able to pay for? And it's like, oh, wait, it's an unlimited check when you're on deployments like this. Uh, so, yeah, that was his marketing strategy. The only chaplain to use real wine for communion. Uh, he would have and he knew when he was preaching. Genius, because, Jerry. It's absolutely genius. It is. <laughs> Food or alcohol attracts anybody. I mean, whether, whether you're a believer line. or not. <laughs> yeah. The, the line for communion was a quarter mile long. <laughs> people <laughs> would be in the tent and then you'd see people exit the tent and they'd wrap around this circus tent like two laps. 
and then still <laughs> extend out for a good tenth of a mile or so. And you're like, what's going on? And they're like, oh yeah, Captain Perkins is uh, doing service again. And you're like, why the line? And they're like, well, he uses real wine for communion. And we're like, we thought that was a joke. No, he really does. And you get this little piece of bread that comes with it. And we're like, oh my goodness. Uh, but it worked. Um, so that, that was our chaplain. And he told us before we went back to um, the U.S., that, you know, specifically for the married men, he's like, how many of you are married? All right. How many of you are expecting to find all that combat tax-free money that you've been earning while you're over here? And all our hands go up. And he said, all right, go ahead and put your hands down because that money's not going to be there when you get home. And we're like, what? No, not my wife. And he said, this is what's going to happen. Very blunt. He said, either A, you got new furniture. And if that's the case, you tell your wife, thank you, hug her and enjoy the new furniture. Um, now, if you don't have new furniture and what you have instead is she had a boyfriend, um, thank her for her honesty, immediately call me. Here's my home phone number back back in the U.S. And he gave us his number. And so here I am, a couple of days later, we're in Fort Benning, Georgia, driving to our house. And my wife says to me, I have something I need to share with you. Please don't be mad at me. And I'm thinking in my head, please be furniture. Please be furniture. <laughs> right. So she heard me muttering it. I'm like, um, uh is it furniture? Did we get new furniture? And she's like, uh, yeah, we got new furniture. Um, how did you know? I'm like, oh yeah. Somebody said that chances are, you know, you come back from these things and you have new furniture. Cool. Uh, that's, that's fine. And then she says, but that's not all. And I'm like, crap, we got a boyfriend too. <laughs> and I don't know if we can say crap on the show. Sorry. I just did it twice. Um, <laughs> and, and so she said, there's more. And I'm thinking, oh boy, we got furniture and a boyfriend. I don't know if I can handle this. We got two babies. And, and so like, I'm freaking out in my head. And she says, now, now please don't be mad. But while you were over there, I had been praying for you the whole time. And I was like, okay, well, I, I can take that. And she said, now in my prayers, Jerry, especially when the war kicked off, I prayed that if God brought you back in one piece, I would get you to church and God would handle the rest. And I was like, Oh, Oh, she made a deal with God. And this is important for her. And, you know, I'm Mr. Unbeliever here. And, and I remember saying to her, and she's expecting me to be mad, to poo poo the idea to say, you know, God isn't real. And I just remember saying to her, you know what, if you made a deal with God, I know that's important for you. And I'm not going to be the guy that makes you break your deal with God. So, yeah. Do you have a church you want to go to? She's like, no, not yet. Um, but, you know, you have a guy in your unit, uh, Morales, and he's an avid Christian. Maybe he knows of a church. And so I asked Morales, like, what church does he go to? He told us. We went that Sunday. Uh, my wife loved it. Um, our son loved it. Our daughter cried, so I used that as an excuse to get out of service. Uh, that went on for the last three or four months we were at Fort Benning. I left the army. We went back to my wife's hometown in Corpus Christi, uh, mostly because that was where the most um, free babysitting would be found. So yeah, that, that's why we chose that. And uh, we started shopping around for churches and, and we eventually found one where it was almost like it was a seeker sensitive church. So, you know, rock music, the walls were painted black, the seats are movie theater type of seats, like the type of environment you would be in if you weren't a churchgoer, that's what you found in the church. Uh, but the message from the stage was very much Jesus. And then um, I used my daughter again as an excuse to get out of service whenever she cried. Uh, if you had like the cry babies, um, everybody had like a number on their kid tags and right. they would put it up on a 
a screen somewhere. So if you saw that number, you go get your child. That's the end of the service for you. And our daughter cried every Sunday for about four or five months. And I would get up and go. I'm like, I'll take her. I'll get her. I'll go. And my wife started to catch on. So like towards the end, she's like, I'll go. I'm like, okay, fine. Um, but then after a while, like the number stopped coming up and I thought maybe it's broken. <laughs> and, uh, you know, what's going on here? And uh, so this went on for about a year, year and a half. Uh, and let's see. So about 2005, though, I do know 2005. And I remember the, at the end of the sermon, uh, our pastor is doing that prayer, um, the, the salvation prayer at the end. And I remember him just saying, now I know that you've been, you know, dipping your toe in the water here for the last year. And we're a big church. Like it was, it was also kind of a mega church for Corpus Christi anyway. So this room had easily 400 people in it, 500 people. And the pastor has no clue who I am. None. Never shook his hand, never went out to meet him, nothing. Uh, but he just blurts out there. I know you've been dipping your toe in the water about becoming a Christian for the last year. And I'm here to tell you, cause God's put it on my heart to say this out loud. You're to stop dipping your toe in the water and just dive in. You already know what you're getting into. Now's your decision time. And when he said that, I was like, there's no way this guy knows this. <laughs> like, no way. Uh, and it was just like, I was convicted and I was like, you know, what do I have to lose though? I know what I'm getting into. And uh, I, I love the community that we're involved with. We're in a small group. I love that group. Uh, my wife is happy. I love that. You know, she made a deal with God. If I came home, you know, what could it hurt? And, and so I'm like, all right, Jesus, I accept you as my savior. And, uh, you know, it wasn't like the, you know, ceiling parted and like sunlight beamed down or anything. But, uh, like the moment I said that there was that kind of similar to like in Iraq, when I had that lightness, like that aggression lift off from my heart, when I made that decision, there was like a lightness inside of me. And I thought, wow, um, cool. And then from there started serving in the church, started plugging into a men's Bible group, uh, eventually became like one of the core group leaders of our men's ministry, uh, all the time thinking, I am not qualified for any of this stuff. Um, got involved with a marriage ministry where, uh, called family life. And we were like the city directors for the, the volunteers, uh, for a while. And, um, it was somebody there who kind of said that, you know, God kind of took our lives and put it on acceleration mode, you know, to grow us as quickly as possible. And, you know, just, at some point, though, I was in a men's group, and we were talking about Romans, I think it's 12. Whichever one talks about, like, you're a new creation in Christ, um, maybe it's chapter 2. Chapter, I'm going to look this up after this call. <laughs> but it was talking about, like, when you receive Jesus, you become a new creation. And, like, the men in the group are talking about this, and it hits me. My own words in the back of my head saying, God, if you're real, you'll replace me with somebody who will love my wife better than I did and raise my children as if they were his own. And I was like, holy moly. He made me my own replacement. And yes, he did. Uh, and I remember just breaking down and crying at that table. And like, nobody had any clue. I was crying. Nothing came out of my mouth other than gibberish, uh, not to speak in tongues. Just, I couldn't get a coherent word out. Uh, Cause I couldn't form words. Um, and they, they're just like rubbing my shoulder, rubbing my back, you know, it, it's okay. You know, whatever, like, we'll talk to you after this. And uh, I think eventually what I was able to get out of my mouth was um, I just need to go home and, uh, you know, and, and tell my wife, I love her. 
And, and so I did that. I went home, told my wife, I loved her. I, I hugged her. Uh, I cried. She didn't know why. And eventually I explained it to her. She goes, Oh, wow. God made you your own replacement. I'm like, Oh, that's so cool. And like, this is like in 2007, 2008. So this is years after I became a Christian uh, and definitely many years after operation Iraqi freedom. And after that prayer, and it was just humbling that God had been there in Iraq working on me before I even knew I was going to invite him in to work on me. Um, but even if I go further back than that, uh, and this is why I was crying. It was like, not just that prayer in Iraq that it wound, it turned out I made a deal with God. <laughs> like, you know, if you're real, you're going to do this. He's like, well, I am real. Boom. <laughs> Here you go. Uh, oh, by the way, your wife reinforced the deal. So let's, let's keep that going. I'm like, oh man, that's slick. And then just seeing how he'd been a part of our lives ever since that. But then going back, you know, to when I was 11 years old, and my dad was hanging from that closet, even though we'd done all kinds of things for suicide watch, he still managed to find a way to hang himself. And I remember screaming out, please, no, you know, please God, no. And that rope snaps. And um, he comes to a few seconds later or whatever it was. Uh, And then of course the next day is when he gets the help that he needs. We wind up in foster care. The family we're with for foster care is a Christian family introducing us into what a Christian grounded family looks like um and then on top of that you know you fast forward to my dad's retirement so gosh seven eight years later uh, he's going through his physical on um you know so he's getting x-rayed he's getting you know scanned left and right and the physician asks him how are we here talking to each other (laughs) and my dad's like well it's 20 years i am retiring and this is my exit um physical and the doctor says no let me explain and he puts i'm I'm telling him more dramatically than it happened i'm sure but he puts the x-rays up on the the light board so this is before they were all like computerized uh for the younger crowd listening in and he says you see this scar tissue here around c5 and c like c numbers you know my dad didn't understand what the guy was saying just like there was scar tissue on his um spinal column and my dad's like yeah well I'm, i'm trusting you yeah he goes yeah, it looks like you broke your neck in the spot that should have killed you. Um, oh, wow. When did you break your neck? And then my dad's like, well, do you see the part where it says I committed suicide or attempted it? He goes, yeah. Yeah, I hung myself. And he's looking at the x-rays again, the doctor. And he goes, yeah. So I'm still wondering, how are we here talking to each other? Because you shouldn't be here. That's and, wild. And my dad shared that with me after he retired. I thought nothing of it, but... At that table, talking about Romans 2 or 12, you know, you're a new creation in Christ and realizing God had been a part of my life longer than I realized, my my mind went all the way back to that story and those events prior to that. And that's that's why I lost it. I was like, oh my gosh, um, this is insane. You know, it's I've always heard people talk about this, but I'd never seen it in my own life. And and here I am in this moment, like 2000, whatever year it was having that revelation and that realization. And I'm like, all right, you got me <laughs> club member for life. <laughs> let's, let's do this. That's um, an amazing, that's an amazing story. You know, Jerry, from what I know of you and listening to listening to this path, you've as a husband, as a father, as a, a military serviceman, now as a business person, you've always seemed to step up to answer the call of God's potential. And as I mentioned in the opening, you are a, you authored a book called Beyond the Rut. And one of the threads 
throughout your life, at least now in this space, is helping people move beyond you know, whatever rut they find themselves in. Yeah. What, what can we do if and when we get stuck in a rut? And what role does God play in helping us get out of those ruts? Yeah. Um, in that book, I talk about, you know, looking at your life through the five F's and there for me in order of priority. So the first F is faith followed by family, then your fitness finances and your future possibility. And a lot of us, you know, we gear ourselves towards succeeding in our career or our business. And that becomes our full focus. Uh, but when we do that, it takes our eyes off of everything else that's important to us and probably more important to us. Um, you know, that the men in my life who struggled the most didn't have God at the forefront. And, and that was something I learned. Well, really not till I was 27 because I was stubborn until that point. Um, actually I was stubborn after that point, but <laughs> God's always working on us. Right. Uh, yeah. and, and so, yeah, faith first and foremost, uh, having that as a part of your life. And then the next most important relationship is with your spouse or your future spouse. So preparing yourself, for your future spouse to be somebody who will listen to her, protect her, care for her, um, you know, lift her up in a sense. And, and because of that, the two of you are now a united front to be able to raise your kids. Uh, and then that's your priority as far as family relationships go. And then you got your extended family, your friends, your family, your church community, and so on. And then when you get into fitness, you know, how's your physical, emotional, and uh, even spiritual health going? Um, and then, you know, finances, really, do you have what you need to take care of you? But also, do you have what you need to be able to give generously? So, and also set stuff aside for the future. So it's just a healthier look at money that you're not defined by your job. You're not defined by your status. You're not defined by your six-figure or seven-figure income or five-figure income. Um, you know, money is strictly a tool. You know, can you give what you need to give? Do you have what you need to take care of you? Uh, and, you know, God provides everything. So you, you should, <laughs> uh, or at least learn to manage it and, and be a good steward of it. And then your future, how are you continuously growing to be the person that God already sees you as? And uh, so those are the five F's I like to look at my life from. And, you know, when somebody feels stuck in life, like they're just kind of in this pattern of behavior that isn't productive for them. Those are the five F's I like them to explore is where are you in your faith walk? You know, are you right with God? You know, are you going to him first? Uh, above anything else. And then from there, how are your interactions with your spouse and your kids? Uh, or if you're divorced, what's the interaction like with your kids, but also are you showing respect for the mother of your children? Um, and then everything else in priority after that. So I think I answered the question or I you just did. wanted to talk about the five F's. So <laughs> yeah, thank you for that. So you have, you have two children, Jacob and yes. Emma. And as as you know, for the last four decades, our culture has been attacking masculinity. Mm. So you raising Jacob, because you, you said he's in his early 20s now, was right in this space, this, these last few decades. How have, you been, how have you and Olivia been able to navigate having him grow up in, in a way that is I don't know, antithetical or opposite or pushing back against cultural dictates to have him realize you know, God's potential for him. 
How have yeah. you, the, the two of you been able to navigate that? Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause you got like two sides of the coin. Uh, a lot of masculinity in American, in American culture is that caricature of, I gotta be like Sylvester Stallone or Arnold Schwarzenegger. Like the man is the weapon. The man is always tough. Uh, you know, our kids were growing up after the Marlboro man. So they didn't really know that stereotype or that uh, persona. And then you got kind of that pushback of that anti um, antithesis of that image or uh, what's the, there's a fancy word for this. Um, oh, it's, it's escaping me. It's like when you have a uh, kind of like a core memory of like what birds should look like. And then there's like this picture of a sparrow in your head. And so you compare all birds to the sparrow. Is it close to that? But what's that? Anyway, that word's not important. Anyway, so you got that that one character or that one persona of manhood. And then you got this pushback that says, no, you know, everything that that is, you got to be the complete opposite. And, you know, that's not really the case either because, you know, we're in a society where, um, you know, women have been empowered, but men have kind of been left in a lurch. Like everything we thought was masculine is wrong. So what, what's in the vacuum here? What is masculinity, especially like healthy masculinity, and so for us, I think a book that really helped me was one called Tender Warrior by Stu Weber. Um, he was a special forces um, soldier, served in Vietnam. I think he survived a helicopter crash. Um, and I think if I remember the story correctly, that led to cancer being discovered and he was able to get treated for cancer. So that was his aha moment. He winds up becoming a Christian. He becomes a pastor and he writes this book called Tender Warrior. And he uses examples of like David and uh, I think David specifically of how David as well as Stu and, and many other men that he used as an example, they're warriors. You know, they defend their family, they protect their family, they protect their community. Uh, they defend against evil, those kinds of things. So they're warriors, they're tough, uh, they're strong, uh, not just um, with might and physical fitness, but they're also strong with their character. Um, and then they're tender when they need to be. So they know how to be gentle with their spouses. They know how to be gentle when they're raising their kids and they're a whole person. And that was the thing we wanted to present to our son and not just our son to our daughter as well. Um, we wanted our son to see me as a whole person. So, you know, I was the kind of dad who would play video games with him. I was the kind of dad who would spend time with him, take him to a pond, feed ducks. Once saw him get chased by geese. It was funny until I realized he needed us to save him from the geese. <laughs> and he doesn't like that story. So we'll just move on. <laughs> he ran so fast though. But anyway, okay. Uh, and, and at the same time, he needed to know, like, here's me putting my foot down on certain values. We don't puff ourselves up by tearing somebody else down. Um, yeah we respect women, you know, and, you know, we can pursue women, uh, we can pursue relationships. Um, ultimately we want one relationship for the rest of our lives. Um, but we're not going to, you know, satisfy ourselves at the expense of somebody else. And, right. and so keep in mind that a woman is a person just like you. And, uh, so that was something we always let them know, like, yeah, women are a part of the world. They're a part of our lives and they're not a tool. They're not a commodity. And so having that respect there was uh, something we, we ingrained in him. Um, and I think the most important thing was, you know, him seeing that I'm human. So, um, you know, like they're, oh, they're, 
plenty of times where my wife and I argued in front of our kids, uh, plenty of times where I was upset and losing my cool, getting angry and clearly in the wrong and, and seeing that that was not an okay way to express myself. But the important thing for them was not just to see that, but instead of doubling down on my anger or doubling down on the argument, uh, my wife and I felt like it was very important for our kids to see the other side of this. So um, strength wasn't just, you know, being able to be aggressive and strength was not being intimidating to others. Strength was also being hum uh, humble and, and having the strength to turn to your kids and say, I was wrong to yell with your mother in that argument at your mother in that argument. I was hundred percent wrong. Um, this is why I was wrong. This is where I went wrong. Here's where she and I are on the same page. This is where we landed. Uh, so the conversation we had in behind closed doors after you guys went to your rooms, this is where we landed. This is how we got there. And, and having that recap for our kids, because they would see the start of the argument, but we also knew that our son especially needed to see how that, that argument closed. And, and so teaching them that, yeah, you're going to feel upset. It's not okay to lash out at people. And if you do, um, or if you're about to get humble, own it, ask for forgiveness and don't do it again. And so seeing them do things like that has been really cool. Um, I'm sure it's also been cool for, for Emma as well, because she, she sees the role model in you. And I can only imagine that makes, you know, prospective boyfriends, even prospective husbands, um, it gives her direction towards the type of man that she is ultimately oh, looking yeah. for. Is that fair? Oh, huge. Um, because I, I worked for a battered women's shelter for a while and, uh, got to learn like, you know, who do perpetrators go after? And there's a, there's a type they go after. And, and oftentimes it's that the woman who has daddy issues, you know, they don't have a strong relationship with their dad. Um, and I knew that before I even worked there. Uh, I just got more of the data while I was there, um, as a community educator guys, not somebody working on furlough. Cause that's usually what people think when they see a man, a straight man working in a battered women's shelter. It's like, Oh, he's working off a prison sentence. It's like, no, mm. <laughs> it wasn't the case. Um, but anyway, I, I knew that the stronger of a relationship my daughter and I had that, that would be something that she carried with her as she got into her dating life. And, uh, and, you know, she's chosen some good guys that go out with, she's chosen some ones I don't agree to. And, uh, yeah, just letting her kind of learn it on her own. Um, I think one of the, the cool payoffs was one of her boyfriends had this moment of insecurity. Um, he felt like um, he wasn't good enough for my daughter. And of course I'm the dad. So I'm like, yeah, you're right. You're not. But <laughs> uh, which wasn't fair. Cause he actually was a really nice kid. Uh, but he just had this moment where he was feeling insecure about himself. And his expectation was that my daughter would make him feel better about himself. And she knew right away, nope, this guy's feeling insecure. Not my job to compensate for that. Uh, he needs to sort that out and kind of bring himself back together. And so what he was doing was he was trying to break up with my daughter, not so much because he was done with the relationship and it wasn't going to work out. It was like borderline manipulative. Like I'm going to threaten breaking up with her. She's going to grovel. And then that's going to make me feel good about myself. Mm -hmm. And my daughter picked up on that. And she said, look, I love you. I see what you're going through. You need to go home and sort this out and fix you Good for her. And tomorrow or the day after you call me back, let me know where you are. 
and let me know where you think we are. And I'll let you know if I'm on the same page with you. And uh, she sent him home. She was like 17 at the time. And I'm like, that's my girl. Yeah, good for I love her. her. And, uh, and my wife was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe they're going to break up. I'm like, so what? I mean, they're not married. They don't have kids together. This is the great time. If it's going to fall apart, now's the time. Yeah. And just letting our kids know, like in these relationships, dating relationships specifically, if you know it's not going to go forward and it's taking a lot of effort to kind of keep you together while you're dating, maybe going your separate ways is the way to go. Um, and it's not, you know, my daughter's job to fix somebody emotionally. Um, you know, when she's married, it's part of the relationship to support each other. But you know, if if somebody's insecure, that guy's got to go fix that himself. He's got to go get the help he needs. Not expect my, my daughter to be his psychiatrist. Uh, Jerry, you've, you've, you've built, you've built one heck of a life. You, you grew up in, in an environment that included betrayal, that included the prospect of your father committing suicide. You were in a war and, and you navigated all of this to just create an amazing career and family. And you're, you really are exactly what I hope for this podcast to be like podcast, ideal podcast guest, strong, principled Christian man. And I want to thank you so much for the wisdom and insights that you've shared today. I'm going to put you on the spot now as we, as we put a bow on this, would you mind praying us out? Yeah, I don't mind. All right. Uh, Heavenly Father, I thank you for bringing uh, Ed and I together to talk about uh, your story through me, Lord. Um, just like this show is not my credit to take, my life is not my credit to take. Um, I see clearly your hand in it every step of the way. Uh, and even when I think that you haven't been in my life, I, I know for a fact you've been there. Uh, and I know there are people listening to this conversation right now, and they're probably feeling the same way. God, where are you? And I hope that this conversation lets them see that you're already there and you're just waiting for them to see. And, um, you know, Lord, I'm, I'm just hundred percent grateful that you've been here for me. Um, and I look forward to the, the ongoing friendship with Ed, uh, with the listeners of this show, with the listeners of my show. And I, I just pray that the platforms you've given us are reaching the people who need it the most so that they can transform their lives through you and for you. And I pray this prayer through your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Jerry. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Ed. Glad to be here. And uh, oh, yeah, share this story. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you shared it. God bless. You can contact the show at it's not my credit to take.com. We'd love to hear from you. God bless.